when we say that God is eternal, we're not just saying that God has lots of time on His hands, but that He dwells outside of time altogether. You know, Einstein showed that time is a physical property relative to other physical properties. And since God is spiritual, He exists outside of the time domain. He occupies a different, eternal dimension. And thus, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, sounds like it was written by a modern-day physicist. The verse refers to God as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. And since God dwells outside of time, He can see the end from the beginning. In fact, He declares Himself as the God who was and who is and who is to come. And yet all at the same time, God revealed His name to Moses as the I Am that I Am. In other words, God is always present, always current, always now. And to prove His sovereignty over time, God utilizes predictive prophecies. In other words, He writes history before it happens. The most obvious example is the first coming of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the Old Testament is packed with over 300 detailed predictions of Jesus' birth and ministry and death? In his little book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner calculates the probabilities of just eight of the Old Testament's 300 prophecies concerning the coming of Christ actually being fulfilled by chance, by happenstance. He says that the odds are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's the equivalent of filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, painting one red, mixing them all up, blindfolding a man, and then having him pick the right one. In other words, the accuracy of biblical prophecy is astounding, and it authenticates God's authority. It substantiates the Bible's reliability. And this is the purpose of tonight's chapters. God writes history before it happens. He prophesies future events through the mouth of Isaiah. 100 years before his birth, Isaiah will write in the chapters tonight of a king. He speaks of his career, his methods, even his name. It is an amazing validation of God's amazing book, the Bible. Well, chapter 44 begins. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, in Israel, whom I have chosen. Now, God didn't choose two people groups. He chose one people group, but with two names. Jacob and Israel are two sides. They're the two natures of the same people. When the nation strayed into sin, it was called Jacob. The word means scoundrel. Jacob was a thief, remember. He was a conniver. He was a deceiver. But when the nation proved faithful to God, it was called Israel, which means God prevailed. It means governed by God. But God chose this people for better or worse as Jacob or as Israel. God's choice of them was unconditional, which he affirms in the next verse. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jezurun, 
whom I have chosen. Jezreel is another name for the Hebrews. It was first used in Deuteronomy 32. It means upright one. God referred to his people Israel, to Jacob, as his upright one. Notice here God affirms a parental connection with Israel. He made them. He formed them in the womb. And as a parent, as you know if you're a parent, you never stop being a parent. The responsibilities and the roles change as your child grows older, but parenting itself is a lifelong commitment. And this is how God felt about Israel. They didn't need to fear. God had birthed them, and he wasn't about to ever abandon them. And this is God's attitude as well toward those of us who are in Christ, those that have been adopted into God's forever family. He's made us, and thus he will never abandon us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 affirms this, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Philippians 1, verse 6, one of my favorite verses, puts it, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, I've heard of parents who disavowed or disinherited their kids, but you never have to worry about that kind of treatment from God. He is faithful. Whether you're a wayward child like Jacob, or whether you're governed by God like an Israel, as long as you trust in Christ, you're God's child. And as a faithful father, God will never disavow his obligation to you. Notice verse 3. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and the name himself by the name of Israel. In other words, men will proudly take the name Jacob or Israel. They'll call themselves God's people. And here God promises to bless his people with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will cause growth in their hearts and in their lives. You know, Isaiah predicts what occurred 50 days after Jesus' ascension. There in the upper room among the 120 who had gathered there on the day of Pentecost, we read about it in Acts chapter 2, that the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on dry and on thirsty souls. You know, throughout the Old Testament, this promise of refreshment, spiritual refreshment, was repeated again and again through numerous prophets. In Numbers chapter 11, the Holy Spirit anointed the 70 men who would help Moses lead the nation. The job had gotten too big for one man. Two of the leaders happened to be in the camp of the Hebrews, sort of out in the public, when the Spirit was poured out. Thus, when they prophesied, it exposed this special anointing of the Spirit to the common people. Joshua was upset by this. He assumed that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit should be reserved to a select few. And so he came to Moses. He said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. But I love Moses' reply. He says, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. I love that. Moses longed for the day when sons and daughters, old and young, Jews and Gentiles, even us tonight here at Calvary Chapel, 
will experience the outpouring and the wonderful blessing of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 39, verse 29, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, are just a few of the Old Testament predictions of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit filling the thirsty hearts of God's people. This is what the risen Christ meant when just before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but you tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus referred to this anointing of power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, as the promise of the Father. Notice here in Isaiah, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it achieves two purposes. First, refreshment, and second, recognition. Isaiah depicts a man's soul as dry and as parched and as thirsty. But it is the Spirit of God who softens us, who quenches that thirst, that makes us supple and fertile. It reminds me of the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, every year the priest, he conducted a ritual. He brought jars of water up from the pool of Siloam, up the hill toward the temple. At a given point in the ceremony, he would pour out the jars there at the altar of the Lord in the temple. And it was at that exact moment one year that our Lord Jesus stood up in the back and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do rivers of living water flow from your heart tonight? If not, you can have the promise of the Father. He wants to bestow upon your life this wonderful power. Jesus offers refreshment for the dry and thirsty soul. And notice too, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit brings about a recognition. Look at verse 5. Once anointed, one will say, I am the Lord's. He'll write in his hand, the Lord's. You see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit brings about a new assurance and confidence and recognition for God's people. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 13, and he told the believers, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. A seal is a mark of ownership. It's a proof of purchase. And when we receive the filling of the Spirit, it's evidence that we belong to Jesus, that we are His child. This experience with the Holy Spirit eliminates all doubts, all fears. After we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that we know. The Spirit is the inner witness that we belong to Jesus. And let me remind you, the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit, it isn't a one-time experience. In fact, you can check it out. The same folks that are filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 are filled again in Acts chapter 4. It's a recurring experience that we can have from time to time. R.A. Torrey once wrote this, We need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I am sometimes asked, Have you received the second blessing? Well, yes, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and a hundreds besides. And I am looking for a new blessing today. If you're enduring a period of spiritual dryness, if your soul's been parched lately, let me encourage you to ask your Father in heaven. Ask Him for the promise. Ask Him to shower you again with the wonderful, refreshing water of the Holy Spirit. As the hymn writer put it, Oh, for the Spirit's quickening power. Oh, for a soul-refreshing shower. Oh, for the Pentecostal power. Lord, 
Send it now. And then verse 6 tells us, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. There is one God, and there is only one God. And here God says, if there is another God, I don't know it. God has no competition. He is the ruler. He is the redeemer. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. Everything originates and culminates in God. He proclaims, besides me, there is no God. And notice what he appeals to here in these verses as proof of his sovereignty. Again, it's his ability to predict the future. You know, Amos chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. Every significant thing that God has done throughout history was first predicted by the prophets. In other words, God loves to tell His people in advance. This is God's way of affirming His authority. Only God can predict the future with precision accuracy. For only God dwells outside of time. Only God is timeless. Satan, on the other hand, is a creature of time. Satan can't see into the future, even though he wants you to think that he can. All too often, he offers up his future predictions as well. We've always had soothsayers and diviners and astrologers and fortune tellers who look into their crystal balls and claim to be able to see into the future. Psychics like Nostradamus to Gene Dixon have attempted to predict future events. And on occasion, if the prediction is vague enough, they might observe a trend and hit on the obvious. But you see, only God is 100% accurate 100% of the time. In fact, I looked up a few of the psychic predictions for 2014. I thought you'd find them interesting. I'm just checking on their accurateness, you know, just, just their correctness of the forecasts. And really, their accuracy rate was pretty dismal. Here, here was what was predicted by the psychics for 2014. Queen Elizabeth will no longer reign. Housing market crashes again. An earthquake alters the course of the Mississippi River. Vice President Biden plays a larger role in the government. Aren't we all glad that didn't happen? A natural disaster hits the Sydney Opera House. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence receives a loud and clear signal from the heavens. They're still searching for intelligence in Washington, D.C. too, I think. Brazil wins the 2014 World Cup. Scotland breaks away from the U.K. Pope Francis appoints the first female cardinal. And none of these things came true. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 18 verse 22 says that if a prophet is not right 100% of the time, then they should be branded a false prophet. 
Heard of a woman who charged her clients $25 a session to gaze into her crystal ball. The fee paid for two questions. Well, one visitor, he complained. He said, wow, he said, isn't this a lot of money, $25 for only two questions? The lady replied, yes, sir, it is. And now, what's your second question? <laughs> hey, they, there have always been so-called fortune tellers making a fortune, ripping off naive and gullible people. You know, Charles Ryrie points out that the odds of one person by chance making 100 error-free predictions in sequence in order to uh, illustrate the odds, he says that you'd have to take 200 billion Earths, each populated with 4 billion people, to find one person who by chance could make 100 predictions without an error. And yet the Bible makes over 300 predictions concerning just the first coming of Jesus, all of which were fulfilled in pinpoint precision detail. You see, God proves his supremacy with prophecy. Verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know, that they may, not be, that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? I mean, God is now mocking the idolaters for creating these worthless, empty idols. He says, surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Shame on the idol makers and the fakers and the foolish takers. He says, the blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water in his faint. The blacksmith, he makes a god, but he grows tired in the process. His god is unable to strengthen its own maker. Hey, contrast that with the true God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The true God gives strength to those who worship Him. He goes on and he says, The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. Now, here is the appeal of idolatry. It is flattery that causes men to overlook its futility. In other words, an idol gives man the opportunity to make a god in his own image. He can make a god like himself in his own likeness. And this is one slender step removed from self-worship. You know, man today is no different. He claims to worship the god within his own inner light, the indomitable human spirit. You know, it's just one step away from idolizing himself. It was G.K. Chesterton who once warned of this idolatry. He said, 
that Jones shall worship the God within him turns out ultimately to mean that Jones shall worship Jones. Let Jones worship the sun and moon, anything rather than the inner light. Let Jones worship cats or crocodiles, if he can find any in his street, but not the God within. It's nonsense today about look for the God within. This is worse than idolatry. At least an idol allows for the fact that God exists outside of ourselves. It keeps us searching. But the ultimate delusion is to make yourself out to be a God. You become not only a slave to your own ignorance, but you become a slave to your arrogance as well. And then verse 14 continues talking about the idol maker. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. I mean, the picture is ludicrous. He uses this tree to warm himself in the fire. He cooks his food over the wood. And then he worships what's left over. I mean, hey, to, to worship mere wood would be foolish, would it not? He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. This is not just foolish. This is the height of insanity. And then verse 18. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He holds up an idol that he's made. Isaiah says he's holding up a lie. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. It's amazing. Even though Israel had rejected God for foolish idols, God never forsook Israel. He set them aside for a time. He taught them their lessons, but he never forgot them. He never abandoned them. He was a faithful father to his kids to the very end. And there are still promises that he's made to Israel that he is still obligated to fulfill. And then verse 22. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And understand, this is how God treats our sin. He blots it out. In other words, he permanently eradicates our sin. He doesn't just put the sin in the trash bin, you know, over on the, the 
you know, your, your front page. He doesn't just move it over into the trash bin where it can still be retrieved later. No, God erases your sin from the hard drive. He completely removes it. He blots it out. We're told, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who forms you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. God is our Redeemer. He is also the God of the universe, the creator of the universe. And here we're told that he stretches out the heavens. You know, astronomers today, they observe an expanding universe that the galaxies are traveling away from each other at enormous speeds. The physical universe is stretching or it's spreading out. And the implication of an expanding universe is that if it's stretching out now, it must have had a beginning. It must have had a starting point. Cosmologists call it the Big Bang. I would call it the moment of creation. Well, Isaiah says in verse 25, Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad? In other words, the Lord is so accurate in His predictions, it makes the so-called soothsayers, the wannabes, jealous and frustrated. He says, Who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness? Who confirms the word of His servant and performs the counsels of His messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited? To the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Now understand, Isaiah is writing here to a future people at a future date. This must have sounded strange to Isaiah's contemporaries, because Jerusalem was inhabited at the time. It was built out. I mean, it had its suburbs. The area around it was prosperous. But you see, Isaiah is looking ahead. Oh, about 160 years. And he's speaking to the Jews who will live in the land after the fall of Jerusalem. Isaiah is writing around the year 700 B.C. The Babylonians will sack Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Then the Persians will conquer the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And one of the first decrees issued by the new Persian ruler, this man named Cyrus, will be for the Jews to return and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so here, a century and a half or so beforehand, God is promising Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, you will be built, I will raise up her waste places. In fact, through Isaiah the prophet, God writes a letter to this future king of Persia. He predicts his triumph and his greatness. He even calls him by name, Cyrus. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible. And when Cyrus reads it, it becomes a testimony to him. Now let me chart for you what happened during the 160 years between Isaiah and the coming of Cyrus. The world was dominated by the Babylonian Empire and its most famous king, Nebuchadnezzar. It was a golden age. Babel reached its zenith. It was a military and a commercial giant. 
Judah surrendered to the Babylonians in 605 B.C. In 597 B.C., some of its princes were exported back to Babel, including a man named Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In 586 B.C., Babylon put down the final Jewish revolt by burning down their temple and destroying the city of Jerusalem. At the time, Babylon was considered the strongest city on earth. Its walls were impregnable. Babel had a double wall, 311 feet high, 87 feet thick, the historians say, wide enough for a line of 11 cars, door panel to door panel across the top of the wall. Euphrates River flowed under those walls, providing fresh water. The fall of Babylon came on October the 12th, 539 B.C. While Nebuchadnezzar's successor, a king named named Belshazzar, partied in his throne room. This king was proud. He was pompous. At that very moment, the Persians were camped outside the walls of Babylon. Yet rather than show concern... Belshazzar was so arrogant, so defiant, he felt that Babylon was invincible. Rather than show fear, he threw a party. That night, he called for the Jewish treasures, the bowls, the jars that had been taken from God's holy temple, the sacred vessels that had been used in the worship of God. Belshazzar called for them and used them as beer mugs and as shot glasses. It was blasphemy. Suddenly, a mysterious hand appeared on the wall of the palace room. It was the hand of God writing Belshazzar a message. Daniel 5 recounts the episode. Here are verses 5 and 6 from the old King James Version. I'll make a point of this. It says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. I love reading that out of the old King James. His knees smote one against the other. But then the other more revealing phrase, the joints of his loins were loosed. Not only that his knees started knocking, but it scared the stuffing out of him. Perhaps he had to race to the royal potty. Reminds me of the British naval captain. One day a cabin boy raced into his quarters and told him, he said, there's a Spanish galleon off the starboard bow. Captain bravely ordered, he said, fetch my red vest and sound the battle stations. The crew fought valiantly. They defeated the enemy. But a few days later, the boy again rushed into the quarters. This time, there were two Spanish galleons off the port bow. But again, the brave captain, he barked, Fetch me my red vest and man the battle stations. Well, the captain's aide, he was so inspired. He asked permission to ask the captain a question. He said, Sir, why do you always ask for your red vest before going into battle? The courageous captain, he answered, he said, Well, son... Just in case I sustain a hit in the battle and I start to bleed, I don't want my men to see the blood. That would discourage them. I want them to keep fighting. The boy left the cabin so proud of his courageous captain. 
Well, the next day, the same cabin boy came running into the captain's quarters. Captain, captain, the whole Spanish Armada is on the horizon. The captain ordered, son, fetch my red vest, my brown pants, and sound the battle stations. (laughs) Well, that was Belshazzar. He was so frightened. (laughs) He needed a good pair of brown pants. In response to God's writing on the wall, Daniel was called in to interpret the message. Remember what it read? Meany, meany, tekel, you farsi. Your number is up. You've been weighed and found lacking. Your kingdom will be divided. While God's message was preoccupying the king in his palace, the Persian army had been busy outside. Their general, a man named Ugabaru, had gone upstream and he had diverted the Euphrates River into a lake. This created a dried up riverbed. That night, as the king partied, the Persians invaded the city, but not by going over the walls, but by going under them. It was a complete surprise. They conquered Babylon without firing a shot. It was on October the 27th that the Persian king Cyrus rode into Babylon. And the Hebrew prophet named Daniel went out and met Cyrus. And he had with him a scroll of Isaiah. Daniel showed Cyrus here in these chapters we're reading, Isaiah 44 and 45, where the God of the Hebrews had predicted him by name 160 years previously. And here's what Cyrus read. Verse 27. Who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. This is exactly how Cyrus conquered Babylon. Then verse 28. Who says of Cyrus? God had mentioned Cyrus by name a hundred and 60 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. And then God said of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus will be God's servant and will fulfill God's purposes. And history tells us that Cyrus complied. In chapter 45, the prophecy continues. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him. History tells us that Cyrus conquered a total of 46 different nations, including uh, the Babylonians. To subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut, Again, when Persia invaded Babylon, the gates of the city were left unlocked that very night. Whether it was negligence or whether it was some kind of a covert operation, we don't really know. But God had predicted it beforehand. Cyrus's surprise invasion had been aided by the hand of God. And then verse 2 speaks of Cyrus. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of the secret places 
that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I formed the light and created the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Imagine Cyrus writing in and getting this scripture from Isaiah and reading the scroll and seeing that this had all been predicted for him. God had sent him a message in advance. You know, the Persians, they worship Mazda, not the car, but the false god, Mazda. It was the god of light. And here Yahweh says to Cyrus that he created the light. The god of Israel called Cyrus by name a century before his birth. Yahweh is the only god. There is no other besides him. He alone is worthy to be worshipped. It's Josephus, the Jewish historian, who tells us that Cyrus was so impressed with Isaiah's prophecy that he felt compelled to help the Jews return to their land. His first decree allowed their return, along with them taking their temple treasures back with them. Cyrus even financed a large part of the operation from his own royal treasuries, a pagan king, sought to fulfill the role that God had predicted in advance for him and to be the Lord's shepherd over his people. I personally wouldn't be surprised if we don't meet Cyrus in heaven one day. Verse 8 tells us, Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. Ah, the Lord have created it. He creates the universe, and He's created our salvation as well. Woe to him who strives with his Maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are, your, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Isaiah here is warning Cyrus not to buck God's plans. The clay doesn't talk back to the potter. And neither should Cyrus question the God who has created him. He says, Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretch out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Just as God stretched out the heavens, He created Cyrus's kingdom. God blessed Cyrus and put him in this position to serve his purposes, to set the exiles free, to rebuild Jerusalem. And Isaiah here makes a point. Cyrus's cooperation wasn't bought. It wasn't bribed was prophesied in advance. It was the will of God. Cyrus really had no other choice but to obey. And thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you. 
and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. The other nations that Cyrus conquers will likewise give glory to God. Cyrus's success will be attributed not to the idols of Persia, but to the one true God, the God of Israel. And so, truly, you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. Now to this point, Isaiah has been describing the salvation brought by Cyrus. But Cyrus's salvation was not everlasting. In fact, the Persian Empire lasted only 200 years. It was upset by the Greeks and one Alexander the Great. Another salvation is here in view. Cyrus was actually a type of another Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, and the salvation from sin that Jesus would bring to those who would trust in Him. And so we're told in verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And this is such an interesting passage here, for in this great declaration of God's supremacy, he makes a few very provocative statements. Notice he says that he did not create the universe in vain. And then he says he formed it to be inhabited. This is suggestive. If you go back to the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. Notice the expression, without form and void. The Hebrew translation of that expression is tohu vobohu. Yet here in Isaiah we're told that God did not create the universe in tohu. Now here's an apparent contradiction. Genesis 1 insists that God created the universe in tohu, or without form and uninhabitable. Whereas Isaiah 45 says that he created it not in tohu. It was not without form. It was not uninhabitable. So which is it? Was it created with form or without form? That is the question. And there are people, myself included, who believe that this opens the door for a gap between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 1 verse 2. That God's original creation occurs in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis. And as Isaiah 45 tells us, God created the heavens and the earth with shape and with design and ready to be inhabited by human beings. That the universe was sort of a fully furnished apartment waiting for mankind. But something cataclysmic occurred that threw God's original creation into chaos and disorder. So that 
Darkness was upon the face of the deep. It made the universe uninhabitable. In fact, some scholars suggest that the language of Genesis 1 verse 2 actually suggests this, that it could be rendered, the earth became without form and void. Not just that it was, but that it became. Now, I believe it's possible, although certainly not conclusive, but it's possible that the fall of Satan and his demons took place in the gap between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 1 verse 2. We know that Satan was once Lucifer, the anointed angel who covered God's throne. He had considerable influence. So when he rebelled, a third of the angels, the Bible said, joined in his revolt. It was a major mutiny, and a war erupted in heaven. God had to kick him out, had to excommunicate his cronies from heaven. And it's possible that Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, describes the collateral damage resulting from Satan's fall. The earth was now without form and void. It was now uninhabitable. That's not the way God had originally created it, but it was the result of this war in heaven. And that means that the six days of creation in Genesis 1 are essentially God's recreation of the heavens and the earth. Now, Again, this is some conjecture. And you got to ask how long of a gap occurred between Genesis 1 verse 1 and 1 verse 2. We're not told. In fact, we have no way of knowing. That's why I'm not sure how old the earth happens to be. The only person around was the one who created it, and he's chosen not to tell us. It's my belief that life on earth is indeed relatively young. 6,000 to 10,000 years old. But the age of the earth itself could be much longer, maybe even billions of years. There is one disclaimer that I want to insert. Sometimes the gap theory, which is what I'm suggesting, is used to explain the fossil record in the geological column and to make room for billions of years of evolution. I couldn't disagree with that more. Fossils imply death. And death doesn't enter the picture until the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 does paint a picture of darkness and chaos and evil, yet it was not caused by human sin, but by the rebellion of Satan and the sin of the angels. I believe a better explanation for the fossil record is the flood of Noah, not the gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Well... Back to our text. In verse 19, God speaks again to Cyrus. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. God hasn't spoken secretly. He hasn't whispered in cryptic codes that only a few can decipher. God has spoken plainly and clearly. For all to learn. He said, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? 
a just God, and a Savior. There is none besides me. Are you picking up on a reoccurring theme here? I mean, there's one God. And here God is warning Israel. Once Cyrus sets them free and allows them to return to their homeland, they shouldn't make the same mistake twice. Beware of idolatry. Which of their idols has predicted their future? No, God has told them the end from the beginning. Thus God is the God, the true God, and the God that they should worship. Verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. And, I know, and notice how simple God makes our salvation. He offers it to people from the ends of the earth. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And he says to everyone, to people from the ends of the earth, look to me and be saved. How much simpler could he make it? Look to me and be saved. Just look with the eye of faith. One look is all it took. Verse 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And you'll probably recognize that verse if you're familiar with the New Testament. Sounds like Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, doesn't it? Where it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, these two chapters, Isaiah 44 and 45, are actually chock full of various proof texts for the deity of Jesus. Follow with me on this. If there's only one Savior, which we just read that there was, and yet Yahweh and Jesus both claim to be the Savior, if there's only one first and last, which we just read that there was, and yet Yahweh and Jesus both claim to be the first and the last, if there's only one God before whom every knee will bow, and yet Yahweh and Jesus both claim to be that God, then either the Bible contradicts itself, which it doesn't, or Yahweh and Jesus are one and the same, which they are. And then verse 24 closes. He shall say, surely, in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Only in the Lord will you find righteousness and strength. And thus worship him. Don't be angry with him. And there we have Isaiah chapters 44 and 45.